And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. I hope everyone enjoyed the previous episode where uh, I, along with my brother Jason, covered the American Daikaiju movie based on the video game Rampage, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson and three very large, very angry monsters. A lot of fun. This time out, we are taking a look at the next two episodes of the original Ultraman from 1966 and 1967. The two episodes today feature the alien Dada and the monster Goldon. But uh, we have got quite a bit of news to cover because we didn't get any news last time out. So let's get right into the news. Appropriately enough, we start with Ultra News. Superior 8 Ultra Brothers is finally up for pre-order on Amazon. Now, this is the Blu-ray release from Mill Creek, which was announced quite a while back, but it has taken a good amount of time to actually show up on Amazon. Now, for those who may not be familiar with it, Superior 8 Ultra Brothers was a theatrically released movie from 2008 and features a team-up between four Showa Ultramen, who is uh, namely Ultraman, Ultra 7, Ultraman Jack, and Ultraman Ace, with four Heisei Ultras, namely Tiga, Dinah, Gaia, and Mebius. Now, I've never seen this one before, but I do know that it was very successful. It grossed over 800 million yen, approximately $8 million, which at the time was the most successful film in the Ultra franchise up till that point. It's also pretty timely, as uh, Mill Creek has also just announced the release of the full series for Ultraman Mebius, which will be on DVD instead of Blu-ray. That will follow on uh, on a little bit later. Now, Superior 8 is due out April 5th. Mebius will follow, as I said, on DVD only on May 22nd. Uh, Just a reminder also, I think I previously mentioned this on the show, but the Heisei series Ultra 7X is coming to Blu-ray. That is also due on April 5th from Mill Creek. Uh, Ultra 7 XD Heisei sort of take on Ultra 7. Uh, I want to say it's only 12 or 13 episodes. It's a very kind of dark and gloomy series, but I really enjoyed it. I watched it fan subbed many years ago, and I quite enjoyed that. So uh, be on the lookout for those. Go check them out on Amazon. You can pre-order them. We are getting, unfortunately, kind of towards the end of Mill Creek's uh, run, but man, they're putting out a lot of stuff. We'll be set up with Ultra for quite a while. In even more Ultra news, the special Ultraman Trigger Episode Z is set to premiere on March 18th on Ultraman Connection. 
Uh, now, here in the United States, you can pre-order the video on demand of the episode for $4.99. Uh, listeners in other countries, you will need to go to the Ultraman Connection website and check for their area. They did say that different regions have different availabilities. The episode is an epilogue set two years after the end of Ultraman Trigger, and as the name implies, it's going to bring back Ultraman Zet to the Trigger universe. I'm a little behind on Ultraman Trigger, been watching it with the kids. I think we're on episode 21, I think is the next one, maybe 20. I always, my, my older boy always knows exactly what episode we're on. Uh, but we have really been enjoying Trigger and we loved Zet. So definitely interested in this special event. So I'm, I'm really leaning towards ordering that, uh, that video on demand and then giving it a, a watch. In comic book news, Ross Radke's Kickstarter for Stomped, Issue 3, is live. Now, you may remember that I covered the first two issues of Stomped about a year ago. I want to say it was January of 2021, and I really, really enjoyed them. Uh, Stomped is a Daikaiju anthology comic with different stories set in Radke's original monster-filled universe. The campaign includes both digital and print options, as well as sketches and other goodies that you can add on at some of the higher levels. I personally am very excited to get the next installment, as well as upgrade my digital copies of issue 1 and 2 to print copies. So you can check that out. Just search for Stomped on Kickstarter, and, and you'll be able to check that out. Ross is a, a really cool guy. I've been talking with him a bunch uh, over the past year, basically since we, I did that episode, and very excited to see what's coming uh, in the future in Stomped. In toy news, Playmates has a few new toys coming for their Godzilla and Kong line. There are four new figures that they showed. First, we give a Kong Skull Island Kong, where he appears to be holding the, uh, the impeller from the boat from the end of that movie. We have a 2019 Burning Godzilla from the uh, finale of Godzilla King of the Monsters, and we have two different forms of Shin Godzilla. Very cool. Um, unfortunately, the Playmates toys have been kind of hard to find in my neck of the woods. Uh, I know I've seen some people with Gorosaurus. My brother got me Jet Jaguar. I've never seen either of them in a local store here, so I'm not sure if I'll see them, but they are pretty cool for a, uh, you know, a, a mass market toy, especially if you, if you, you know, want to put them on a shelf or, you know, play with them a little bit and have them fight each other. That's pretty cool too. So keep an eye out for that. Hap tip to my brother Jason for pointing that one out to me. In Kawaii news, new limited edition Godzilla vs. Kong plush toys are available from U2's Collectibles. I'd never heard of this before. That is Y-O-U-T-O-O-Z Collectibles. These are 9-inch tall soft plushies. You have your choice of Godzilla, Kong, and Mechagodzilla, all from Godzilla vs. Kong. They're going for about $35, and these are actually pre-orders right now, so they're going to ship somewhere between May and June 15th. Uh, these are all quite adorable. I know a lot of people like plushy monsters. Um, I know uh, when my uh, my kids were very young, we had a, a plush Godzilla and Rodan and baby Godzilla that kind of floated around a little bit. Um, can be ordered on the U2's website. Uh, hat tip to John Vanover for passing along this information. And finally, in video gaming news, Dawn of the Monsters... From WayForward Studios, the pre-order is now available on Limited Run Games. Uh, Dawn of the Monsters is a 2.5D cooperative beat-em-up, uh, I might also call a brawler back in the day, where the player or players take control of one of four different behemoths to battle the evil Nephilim, a horde of creatures bent, of course, 
on destroying the planet. The art is specifically mentioned in the um, in the release as being inspired by the work of Mike Mignola, and it is very stylized and very cool looking. It has a fully destructible environments, and the game is said to feature a uh, a fighting game depth. An RPG style upgrade. So, you know, I guess uh, combinations and different ways to fight and then ability to upgrade yourself and your uh, as you move through the game. Uh, there are standard and special editions out there for both the Nintendo Switch, the PlayStation 4, and PlayStation 5. I, of course, will be uh, uh, getting that on the Switch because that's the only one of those platforms I own. I am a fan of WayForward Studios from their retro style games on various handhelds over the years. Uh, they have a lot of different games so that if you were up against gamer, a handheld gamer in the Game Boy Advance or DS, even if the 3DS era, you've seen WayForward Studios name quite a bit, and uh, I'm so like I said, very interested in this, looks really cool, definitely going to pick this one up for the Switch, as I said. Pre-orders close on April 3rd, so if you want it, go get it. Hat tip to my buddy Adam Tebow for passing this one along. Uh, as I said, it is cooperative, so if it has network play, maybe Adam and I can hook it up a little bit. Um, uh, shout out also to uh, Nathan Marchand over at Monster Island Film Vault. Uh, evidently, this is not cross-platform, so uh, if you want to do some co-op, make sure you get it on a platform that your friends are on. Um, so, uh, like I said, as you can team up to defend the city from this evil horde. Uh, that's all I've got. If you have any news that you think uh, is uh, worth reporting here, why don't you go ahead and send it in. Directive at yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the show, and I will give you credit. Uh, and uh, we'll just get the information out there. All us giant monster fans, we got to stick together. All right, uh, I've, that's all I've got for the news, so I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with our first of not one, but two episodes of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. What do you get when a fantasy gaming horror sci-fi geek and an army veteran history nerd want to do a comic book related podcast? Why? You get the Weird Wars podcast, of course. Weird War Tales was a 124 issue DC comic book series published from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll sidetrack on to an occasional special mission where we discuss an issue of a like themed comic book from a different title or publisher. There are also the rare Road Warriors episodes where we report on comic related road trips like conventions or visiting the homes and grave sites of comic greats. We'll nitpick what the comics creative team got wrong and crawl about what they got right. We'll also break down the facts behind the fiction in the stories, which is sometimes quite weird in its own right. Even the letters page and our favorite ads can't escape our judgment just as we can't escape yours in our own dead letter office mailbag. Torpedo-eating dinosaurs. Haunted chateaus. Time-traveling rats. Zombie robots. Day-walking vampires. Gargoyle armies. And that's just in the first 20 Weird War Tales episodes. So, report for duty with the Weird Warriors podcast with Max and Rich, where we promise to make war no more. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman episode 28, Human Specimens 5 and 6, was first broadcast on January 22nd, 1967, on Tokyo Broadcasting System. Our writer is Masahiko Yamada, whom I unfortunately had trouble finding other credits for. His name seems to be not uncommon. So uh, while I was doing my research, I did get a lot of hits, but not much wheat for all the, the chef 
for Mr. Yamada. Our director is Masaji Nonagase, who directed many episodes across the Ultra series, including uh, The Blue Stone of Barati with Antlar, uh, which uh, we did many, many years back with my, uh, my good friend, uh, the late, great Sean Angle, as well as our other episode today. We'll talk about him a little bit more um, when we get to that one. He also worked on Ultra 7, Ultraman 80, and other Ultra shows, and he was actually the assistant director on Mothra, which I thought was pretty cool. So our synopsis today is adapted from ultra.fandom.com and goes a little something like this. Captain Muramatsu and Lieutenant Ide are riding on a bus to investigate the alarmingly high frequency of bus crashes at a particular location. The bus, in fact, crashes at the location with Muramatsu and a mysterious woman seemingly unharmed, but all of the other passengers missing. Investigating, Muramatsu is confronted by a police officer who tells him that the bus crashed an hour ago. The captain makes contact with the SSSP to report, and Ide is located in a local hospital with a broken leg. Muramatsu follows the woman, who has headed off towards the nearby mountaintop Cosmic Ray Research Center. As acting commander, Hayata orders Arashi and Fuji to go and recover Ide. At the hospital, one of the other patients is from the Cosmic Ray Research Center, and Ide listens to the man's story that all of the people in the Space Research Institute are frozen by a being called Dada. The man says that he was the only one to escape, but before he can tell much more of his story, the man disappears. The Dada has captured the man and is using his body as a false human form. At the research center, the woman reveals herself as technical officer Akikawa from the Central Space Atomic Research Center, which had been unable to make contact. She asks for the latest report, but the disguised Dada instead intends instead to capture her as his test subject as he has all the other scientists. Akikawa sees a message left in a powder which reads SOS Dada, leading the alien to attack her. She is saved in the nick of time by Muramatsu, and the two are chased throughout the facility. The Dada is ordered by his superior that time is short, so he must capture both specimens and return to his home planet. Muramatsu radios for assistance. Hayata changes to Ultraman, flying to the center. Dada also grows giant, and the two battle. The wily Dada is game, but no match for Ultraman. After being wounded by the specium beam, Dada retreats. His superior tells him to capture the last two specimens and transfer them immediately, so the Dada again gives chase to Muramatsu and Akikawa, trapping them on the roof. The pair fall off the roof, but are saved by a diving Ultraman. Dada shoots Ultraman with a micronizing laser, making him human-sized, but Ultraman simply grows giant again. Giving chase to the retreating Dada, Ultraman uses his fluoroscope ray to continually spot the disappearing alien, before destroying him with one final specium beam. The rest of the SSSP arrives, including the still-suffering Ide, but Miramatsu casually informs them that there is no danger. Ultraman already took care of it. This is a pretty, you know, out-there episode of Ultraman, if, if I'm being honest. Not one which I have ever particularly warmed up to. Well, let's take a look at the notes and see what I made of it. Now, the first scene with the bus has some good moments in it. Ide leaning in on the comedy, naturally, that's, uh, that's going to appeal to me, but also setting up Akikawa as a sort of mysterious lady. And, and I have to say, the bus plunging down the mountain is fabulous. I immediately thought of the old newspaper bus plunge story, which was so widespread at one point, it actually has its own page on Wikipedia, if you want to go look that up. Now, for instance, that 
bastion of journalistic integrity, the New York Times published around 20 different bus plunge articles in 1968 alone. So throwing a bus down a mountain to start your episode popped me for sure. Even the next bit with Captain Muramatsu and Akikawa surviving the crash for no discernible reason and the mysterious loss of time is an intriguing turn of events. Add to that the scenes involving the rest of the science patrol, again, more comedy from Ide, okay, but Hayata smoothly stepping into command and issuing orders, those scenes are well done as well. But, you know, unfortunately, the rest of the episode, to me, does not live up to this setup. Now, once we get to the research center, the plot sort of goes off the rails. We know that the Dada needs human specimens, and he has already captured four. But we also learn that the specimens need to have certain characteristics to be useful. Does every human have these characteristics? Or is this Dada just inherently lucky that the people he needs keep just showing up at the one location he controls? Similarly, the reveal that Akigawa is going to the research center for essentially a bureaucratic errand is a disappointment. From the way she's established in the first act, we're being led to believe that she might be an alien or a secret agent, perhaps even both. While I like having the chief technical officer of an organization being a woman, especially in 1967, especially in Japan, it sort of wastes the work that's done earlier in the story to have that be the, uh, her role uh, as revealed. Now, I must say, I cannot be too hard on an episode which features the captain as the action hero. Now, the show frequently puts the focus on Hayata, Arashi, or Ide, with Muramatsu, not infrequently, left back at HQ, or otherwise, you know, standing nearby looking concerned. Here, he gets to run, jump, climb, so I definitely approve of that. You know, Muramatsu had to make it to captain for some reason, right? Dada himself, he's got a great look. Uh, uh, that said, I've never really put him in the upper ranks of ultra-aliens like Bolton. In fact, I, I have my suspicions. Dada is an attempt to make, essentially, another Bolton, given how popular the Bolton were as foes. He's, uh, it's a creepy humanoid look with strange alien powers involving disappearing and reappearing, menacing and chasing humans around. These are all very Balton-like traits. Unlike Balton, as an enemy, Dada never seems to gel and come together. He never really seems much of a threat to Ultraman. Uh, the stark black and white look is very memorable, and I have liked the Dada in some of their later appearances. Uh, for, for what it's worth, my younger daughter really likes the Dada who is on Kaiju Step. You know, if we're talking the, the kawaii side of it. Uh, but overall, Dada have never been one of my, you know, top-level Ultra foes. Now, by the time Ultraman shows up, frankly, it's a welcome change from the chasing around. Because, they, you know, Dada kind of chases the captain Nakikawa around for a bit. It's not a great Ultraman fight. There are some noteworthy bits. Dada being wounded by the specium beam is quite nifty. I do like that, that he's wounded and actually retreats, showing that he does have, you know, he's an alien. He can think and he can reason. The size-changing segment is very amusing as well, sort of a preview of Ultra 7 being able to operate at human size in the next series. The flying specium beam finish, where uh, they are both flying and Ultraman shoots him with the specium beam in midair, uh, reminds me again of that first Bolton episode where Ultraman duels the Boltons in the air. Now, as a note, Dada's three-face motif, it may come from an old Japanese proverb which says, everyone has three faces they wear, one to the world, one to their family, and one only to themselves. Quote to, or credit to Ultra Fandom uh, for that, that particular note. 
Uh, the Three Faces deal, it's, it's one more aspect of Dada, which does not really seem to be fully thought out. We never get any idea of the purpose or reason for this particular power. He's referred to as the Three-Faced Phantom, which is a cool title, if nothing else, so I'll grant you that. Now, loyal listener and my very good friend, Professor Allen, sent in some pre-feedback for this episode. And the professor writes, Luke, glad that you are getting back to the Ultraman show. You know I love all of your episodes equally. It's, that's, it's just that some are more equal than others. Depending on your timing in terms of recording, these thoughts may be feedback or maybe pre-feedback. As you see, Professor, they are in fact pre-feedback through the magic of time travel, a.k.a. podcasting. Episode 28, Human Specimens 5 and 6. As much as I love the Science Patrol's orange outfits, the royal blue jackets are pretty snazzy too. I agree, they look sharp. I mean, you know, you can tell it's the mid-60s. We are, we are, we are ready to go. We are, we mean business. This one was pretty scary with a bus plunge, hey, followed by a scary monster with scary powers. Their design and geometric, let me try that again, their design and geometric patterns were weird and a bit creepy. We have talked about how in this second half of the series, there have been some very experimental episodes of in terms of plot and direction, and I think this one leans that direction. I agree with that 100%, Professor. This is definitely one of the more experimental episodes. I, you're right on. I do have to say that the effects did not necessarily look great to me as a 50-something with a pretty big HD TV, but in 1967, this probably looked great. Yeah, they... Uh, sometimes clarity, not always best, right? Sometimes you, you, you get the, the smaller TV pastes over the cracks a little bit. So thank you very much for that, that feedback, Professor. It, it certainly seems like the Professor liked this episode more than I did. And that's fantastic. I, I'm totally on board with that. I get what the Professor's saying about the scarier aspects. This is more of a horror story than a straight science fiction story. And this is for sure one of the more experimental episodes. Like I said, it, it does kind of uh, da-da... I guess it makes sense for Dada to be an experimental type of, uh, of, of story. You know, I guess that makes sense considering the name and the look and all that. Uh, I personally, I'm glad you enjoyed this one, Professor. That, that, that makes me happy that, that you enjoyed it, even if it didn't really work as well for me. Now, if you'd like to watch Human Specimens 5 and 6, you do have a couple of options. You can pick up the original series on Blu-ray from Mill Creek in either the regular box or steelbook release. Uh, now, these, as far as I'm aware, still include the free digital copies on the now severely limited Movie Spree website, but you cannot any longer buy the episodes directly from Movie Spree at this point. So if you want to stream it, you can go and stream it for free on ShoutFactoryTV.com. I think you can also use the Shout Factory app on the Fire Stick and some other services, and you should be able to watch it there. I know you can stream it on ShoutFactoryTV.com. And those Blu-ray box sets are still available on Amazon. I know we, we are getting kind of towards the end of Mill Creek's deal, uh, but those are readily available on Amazon if you're interested. And they, we've talked about them before here. I think they're a great value. So what do you folks think? You heard what I thought. You heard what the professor thinks. What do you folks think? Do you like Dada? Do you think this episode works, or do you like me and think this episode needed another rewrite? Uh, write in, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I'd love to talk about it here on the show, and we can keep the discussion going. All right, we're going to take a really quick break, plug a, plug a sponsor in here, you know, take a commercial break, and we'll be back with the next episode of Ultraman right after this. Doctor, it burns when I pee. Me too, thanks to Atomic Flamin' Hot Cheezos, the hottest cheese-flavored 
popcorn snack you can buy without a prescription. Wow, my God, that burns! But these Atomic Flamin' Hot Cheezos are worth it. Look for Atomic Flamin' Hot Cheezos behind the counter at your local pharmacy or in your grocer's snack aisle. Atomic Flamin' Hot Cheezos. So good, they make it burn when you pee. All right, we are back. Ultraman episode 29, The Challenge into Subterra, was first broadcast on January 22nd, 1967, on Tokyo Broadcasting System. Now, writers, we have two different ones credited. The first is Tetsuo Kinjo, and we have mentioned him before. He is, of course, one of the key creators of the entire Ultra series. Uh, he was one of the creators of Ultra Q and the head writer of both Ultraman and Ultra 7. Um, of course, the beloved Ultra Mecha, King Joe is named in Tetsuo Kinjo's honor. Uh, you know, so his name pops up a lot in these early, early years of Ultraman. Our other writer is Ryu Minamikawa. Now, this one is very amusing to me. Ryu Minamikawa is the pen name for our director, Masaji Nanagase, who also directed, as I said, the previous episode with Dada. So this one was the, you know, uh, created by the, the director, and the, one of the founding fathers of the series got together to make this. Now, uh, Nanagase used this Minamikawa pen name to write several other TV shows, both uh, for Subaraya and other, uh, other outfits in Japan. So you do see this name pop up a bit. And as I said, Nanagase also did direct this episode. So his, uh, his stamp is definitely all over it. Now, our synopsis actually comes from ultraseries.fandom.com. And it is adapted from there and goes a little something like this. One day, the Science Patrol learns that a recently abandoned gold mining facility near Mount Odiyama has come under attack by a gold-colored monster. Deploying immediately, the team discovers that the monster is already attacking the nearby town of Muromachi, and the defense force already on the scene attacking the monster with their weapons. The team joins the fray, but just as they are firing on it, the monster quickly burrows away. The team also learns that a miner is trapped inside the mine, so the captain and Ide pilot the Science Patrol's newest vehicle, an underground tank known as the Velucidar, into a rescue operation. Inside the mine, the duo finds a trapped man, but the miner has a bad case of gold fever. Ide manages to pull the crazed man into the Velucidar, and the man inadvertently reveals that the monster, named Goldon, has consumed all of the gold deposits in the mine. During the exchange, the duo learn that Goldon is headed their way, and they hide themselves just as the monster appears. The duo attack Goldon by firing on it with Velucidar's laser, but this only provokes Goldon as it attacks the Velucidar, battering the machine. Goldon returns to the surface to attack once more, but is quickly confronted by the science patrol and their weapons. After dropping a corona bomb on the monster and striking at its heart, Goldon succumbs to its wounds and dies. Meanwhile, back underground, the Velucidar is malfunctioning after being damaged by Goldon, with oxygen slowly running out. Ide works furiously to get the machine fixed and have it return to the surface. Miraculously, Ide fixes the Velucidar and the men immediately head for the surface, when suddenly they are ambushed by the appearance of a second Goldon. The monster tosses the Velucidar around again, this time damaging it beyond repair. With no more oxygen inside their tank, it seems all hope is lost for the duo and their rescued miner. 
Captain Muramatsu manages to hit Goldung with a missile, driving it to the surface. Hayata, who is now alone as Arashi is transporting the injured Fuji to a hospital, spots the second Goldon and transforms into Ultraman. The two clash, with Goldon using its long tail as a weapon. Ultraman tangles Goldon up with its own neck and finally defeats it with a specium beam. Ultraman then burrows quickly underground and retrieves the Velucidar, saving Muramatsu, Ide, and the Miner. In an epilogue, the narrator informs us that all of the gold which the Goldons consumed is being extracted and being used to pay to fix the damage done to the town of Muromachi. Now, after the more experimental episode previously, this time out we have a straightforward monster on the loose episode. This one starts fast and doesn't let up, so let's get right into the notes. Like I said, this one starts up fast as Goldon appears immediately to start the episode. The incredibly creatively named Golden Monster reminds me for all the world of the Brontosaurus, which goes on a rampage through London at the end of the film The Lost World, as animated by Willis O'Brien. Now, we have long known that long necks like that, no, 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 not, not, not that type of long neck, the other type of long neck, were leaf-eating dinosaurs. So we tend to think of them as not being dangerous. In Jurassic Park, for example, the Brachiosaurus is described as being a big cow. Well, you know what else is a big cow? The bull that bucks the cowboy 10 feet in the air and takes multiple guys to rope. That's sort of how I see Goldon. He may be akin to a long-necked dinosaur, but he is big, he is mean, he is ticked off, and you had better get out of the way. Now, I already mentioned The Lost World. Now, that movie, of course, is based on the science fiction book by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which was published back in 1912. Two years after that, another classic of science fiction was published, that being At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Now, for those who are not familiar with that book, I don't know if you can keep listening to this show. I'm joking. I'm joking. Now, if you're not familiar with that book, uh, At the Earth's Core is set in a hollow Earth world deep inside our planet. That world is called Pellucidar. Just like the drill tank vehicle, the SSSP debuts in this episode, although the subtitles on my Mill Creek Blu-ray call it Belusadar with a V. Even more on the nose is that in the book At the Earth's Core, our main character David Innes and his companion Professor Perry enter the center of the Earth via a mining vehicle called the Iron Mole, which is in fact described as a drill tank, one of the common ancestors to me of all drill tanks in all science fiction media across the globe. It seems to me that Kinjo and Nanagase were leaning into the classic turn-of-the-century sort of science fiction for this episode between the connections with, to me, the Lost World and at the Earth's core. Given my affection for that era, in the interest of full disclosure, at the Earth's core and its sequels are my absolute favorite Edgar Rice Burroughs series. It's no surprise, I don't think, how much I dug this episode. The Velucidar itself, a wonderful addition to the SSSP fleet, very sleek, definitely put through its paces in this episode, both as a drill tank and as a combat weapon. I was very, very uh, pleased with, uh, with the Velucidar's debut. The action is front and center this time out. Uh, soon after Goldon emerges from the mine, he gets attacked by the JSDF, and they are soon uh, joined by the Jet VTOL. This results in quite a lot of pyrotechnics and explosions, which are always welcome. I almost have to wonder if the last episode was more low-key because of the number of effects in this episode. 
That's kind of like the classic Doctor Who approach to science fiction television. If you've got a lot of effects in one episode, you got to have a lot of people running around corridors in the next one. You know, that type of thing. Another nice special effect actually comes into play with the Velucidar. When it is drilling down to rescue the Lost Miner, we actually see the vehicle in profile, sort of like a cross-sectional look of the Earth as it drills through it. I really dug this visual. This is exactly how you would present this scene in a comic book or an animated form. So to see it in live action really brought a smile to my face. Intellectually, insofar as I can consider myself an intellectual, I know how that scene was shot, with the model being moved through loose earth against a sheet of plexiglass or some other form of clear uh, you know, uh, material that they're shooting through. But the overall result, it's quite nice. And it's unique so far in the series due to the nature of the vehicle and the setting. You know, we had the jet VTOLs, we had the submarine, uh, but we have not had an underground vehicle like this before. So it's very welcome and a nice addition to the arsenal. I also like the twist to the story where the SSSP can defeat Goldon with the Corona Bomb. Now, typically the SSSP, they can do some damage, but they need Ultraman to finish things off. Here, our heroes get the job done, but they, you know, simply have no way of knowing that there's a second Goldon still lurking in the darkness. The fight between Ultraman and that second Goldon, very well executed. Goldon fights really hard, especially considering the fact that he's a quadruped. And not one of those pseudo-bipedal quadrupeds who we get sometimes like Naranga or Kemular. He's using his tail as a cord to choke Ultraman is a surprisingly direct attack for Well. I really like that. Of course, that move in and of itself foreshadows Goldon's own defeat, as Ultraman ties Goldon's tail around his own neck, incapacitating the monster before the Specian Beam puts him down. Now, looking at him, looking at a still photo, Goldon seems like he would not match up well with Ultraman, again, being a quadruped with a long neck. But I thought this fight was excellent, especially given that body style and the difference, the difference in, in you know, uh, silhouette, let's say, between Ultraman and Goldon. Uh, the epilogue, I thought, was a nice touch. Uh, kind of suggests that the SSSP doesn't roll in, fight a monster, lay waste to everything, then hightail it back to Tokyo. <laughs> so uh, they're 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 going to recover that uh, and make sure that it's uh, used to rebuild the area. I thought that was a nice touch, very very kind of mid sixties touch, I think. Now Professor Allen sent in some pre feedback for this episode as well, and the professor writes, episode twenty nine, challenge of the underworld, a much more standard Ultraman episode, a pretty good one at that. A monster that eats gold? Oh, the humanity! Yeah, in today's economy, no less. By the way, the subtitles on the version I saw included a reference to Pellucidar, which made me chuckle. Take care and keep up the good work, Luke. Professor Allen, host, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, host, Dark Darkness to Light. Thank you, Professor. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I want to say you have the older Mill Creek DVDs. I'll have to break those out and see if it says Pellucidar instead of Elucidar. Have to check that out. Uh, but leave it to the professor to touch on the fiscal damage inflicted by a monster who eats a natural, non-renewable resource like gold. This this is the type of input that I... This is why I keep in touch with Professor Allen. He's always touching on the hard-hitting issues that affect our lives day to day. What if a monster ate all the gold? It'd be a good question. Uh, now, all told, I thought this episode was quite a lot of fun. Uh, had great action and a surprisingly effective monster. We also get a very, very nice new vehicle in Velucidar, and several callbacks to the golden age of science fiction if you're looking for them. Now, admittedly, Goldon is not one of the top guys in the Ultra Kaiju Pantheon, 
Uh, but I think he acquits himself really nicely, and his episode definitely deserves watching. Now, if you would like to watch the challenge into, sub, into Subterra or Challenge of the Underworld, depending on uh, which subtitle track you're looking at, again, you can check it out on Blu-ray from Mill Creek. Those are so readily available on Amazon or it can be streamed on Shout Factory TV. And again, possibly on that Shout Factory app. You know, I, I, I saw that, but I haven't installed it. So that's on me. I, I'll own up to that one. But I do know you can watch it on ShoutFactoryTV.com because I did, in fact, check that before we recorded the episode. Look at that for being a little bit prepared. So what do you folks think? Do you think that long necks deserve to be put over as menaces and not just as big cows? Do you like the monster Goldon? Do you like drill tanks? Do you like At the Earth's Core and its sequels? Uh, don't make me start an At the Earth's Core podcast because I'm just so crazy, I might just do it. Uh, I'm probably not going to, though, because Lord knows I, I barely have enough time to get this recorded each month. But uh, I would gladly talk At the Earth's Core. If anyone wants to talk about At the Earth's Core or the other Pellucidar books, please write me in. I'd, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, but... Again, Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. We can talk about it here on the show, and uh, we'll keep the discussion going. All right, that finishes up our two episodes of Ultraman. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to do listener feedback and close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And it's time now for a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can always email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. Uh, just listen to the outro to the show and you'll find all the information on that. So let's get into our feedback. Our first email comes from Professor Allen. I'm not sure I've, I've said his name enough on this episode, but uh, here you go from Professor Allen. And the subject is Earth Destruction Directive 102 Ultra Comics. And the professor writes, Luke, I remember when these comics were coming out last year and just never got around to purchasing them. But then again, it's a pretty high bar for me to buy any new comic at current prices. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you, professor. Uh, I've said it before. If you if you get enough comics that you can get over the threshold to use a mail order service, I use DCBS. Um, it makes them a little bit more palatable. Uh, but yeah, buying them at, uh, at full price, that's, that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. But anyway, uh, Professor continues, but I am very glad to have heard your take on these. Maybe they will appear on Hoopla sometime and I can partake, although the license details may delay that. I would probably be less concerned about the changes and updates than you would. I tend to give a wide berth to alternate takes and close Elseworlds takes on properties. Good point about the strengths of comic books having no budget. Whatever the writer can describe and the artist can draw, you can do. 
Any shape or size of aliens, any strange world, it's all possible. Thanks for covering The Rise of Ultraman. Good work. Signed, Professor Allen, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, and Dorkness to Light. Professor, first off, thank you very much for writing in. I know you, uh, as we saw in this episode, you're a big Ultraman fan, so uh, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed the coverage of the Ultraman comics. Um, and yeah, you know, the thing about the comics not having a budget, I want to say the first time I saw that particular quote... It was Roy Thomas, I want to say, was talking about that uh, regarding his early tenure on the Avengers. Uh, I want to say like Kree-Skrull War, right around there, where the idea that you could, anything you could dream up, you could turn into part of your story. You weren't limited uh, by, well, we can't physically build that, or we don't have time, or we don't have space. And they use that really well in those Ultraman comics. The second series, Trials of Ultraman, uh, spoiler alert, does kind of the same thing. It uses the fact that it's a comic really well in that sense and that it doesn't shy away from some of the really big bombastic stuff that might be not necessarily hard to do, but more challenging to do in live action. So I'm glad they leaned into that rather than giving us, uh, you know, like a talking head type comic. It's like, if I, if I got a, a Kyodai hero versus monster comic, I want a Kyodai hero versus monsters, right? And we did get that for sure. So thank you very much for writing in, Professor. Our next email comes from someone else who already got a shout out on this episode, John Vanover, uh, the engineer. And John writes in with the subject of Rampage. Hey, brothers. I'm going to say this is hey, bro. Hey, bros. You know. <laughs> John continues. You guys have convinced me I need to watch Rampage. Given the poor conversion record of video games to movies, I have to say I blew it off. Uh, I'm going to jump in. Yeah, I can see that. I totally can see that. There's not been a lot of good video game movie adaptations. Rampage seems like kind of kind of one that makes sense, right? There's not a ton of story to begin with. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of, uh, you know, things that could translate well to special effects. And I think they did a good job with Rampage. John continues, one quick note. The Sky Striker is an F-14, which is a top gun plane used by the Navy. An F-15 is a fixed wing plane that was used by the Air Force. This confusion is partly the fault of the toys and comics as Ace, from G.I. Joe, was implied to be Air Force. When I had my Sky Striker hanging from my bedroom ceiling, I had ripcord in the pilot seat because he looked more like an actual military pilot. Okay, I will take this one. This is 100% my fault because I'm the one that said F-15. We were talking about the context of the A-10 Thunderbolt that appears in Rampage, and I said F-15, of course, the Sky Striker was an F-14. I feel really kind of foolish when I saw John's email and read that because absolutely that is correct. I should I should not have gotten that wrong. My, my brother was like, oh, I should have known that. It's like, dude, I introduced it. I said it. I take full responsibility for confusing those two planes. I mean, you look at, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an Air Force brat. Shout out to my buddy Joe. But, um, you know, if you look at the silhouette of an F-14 and F-15, you're not going to get them confused. So that was on me. I take full responsibility. Thank you, John. Uh, John continues, it surprised me you guys didn't mention one of my favorite fighting games, Primal Rage. Giant dinosaurs versus giant apes or dinosaurs battling Mortal Kombat style. Seems like a shoo-in for you guys. It could probably be made into a cool anime in a kaiju slash Transformers Beast Wars way. I'd watch dinos as the main characters eating cavemen. Anyway, keep up the great work, Doug, guys. Signed, John V. John, thank you very much for writing in. Glad you dug the show. As to Primal Rage, believe it or not, Jay and I actually did have Primal Rage on the Sega Saturn. And 
It's okay. I mean, I, I like Mortal Kombat. I understand the limitations of Mortal Kombat, especially in that era, which is like Mortal Kombat 2, Mortal Kombat 3, uh, back in the 90s. Primal Rage, I like it. It looked cool. It had some cool characters, but to me, it never quite had the depth. The, the fighting aspect of it was not as, as strong as, um, certainly not like to the level of Street Fighter or to like King of Fighters, uh, but not even to like some of those early Mortal Kombat's. They just were more balanced and were better fighters. Primal Rage was a, a fun game. I'll grant you that. There were some really cool characters in it. I remember you had Vertigo, who was like the long, snaky dinosaur. You had, uh, was it Blizzard and Inferno? It was the fire, the, 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 like the frost ape and the snow ape. You had, I think Sauron was his name, was the big T-Rex. I'm blanking. There was Armadon, who was like a, like an Ankylosaurus. So there was a, there was a bunch of cool stuff. And they had really cool environments with the cavemen all around and stuff. What's, what's terrible, and I, and I recognize this as terrible, is that I had a really, really bad fighting game for the Saturn called Battle Monsters. And Battle Monsters is like the worst type of ripoff game of Mortal Kombat, but man, I loved that game. So to me, Primal Rage was cool. Battle Monsters was always like my favorite, like not great fighting game for the Saturn. Uh, so I did kind of fall on that side. I do have, I do remember playing Primal Rage is a lot of fun. Inferno peed on you in one of his uh, fatalities, didn't he? Uh, I want to say. So there you go. Ended up selling that game for uh, quite a lot of money on eBay, not going to lie. And if you Sega Saturn fans out there, uh, there's a there used to be, I'm assuming there still is, there used to be a pretty healthy market for Sega Saturn games, some of those uh, more obscure ones uh, that didn't get quite huge releases like uh, um, like Primal Rage. So, uh, But I hadn't thought about Primal Rage in years. So thank you, John, for bringing that in. Thank you for your, uh, your email. Hope you continue to enjoy the show. Uh, social media... Likes, shares, retweets, comments, all that, uh, all that jazz, uh, from the last couple of episodes. Really appreciate all these. As I always say, social media really helps the word get out there about the show and it is greatly appreciated. But we got some, uh, some social media attention from, hey, Professor Allen, once again, uh, plus two true freaks, the fan holes podcast, my brother, Jason. Bro Rad, History of Comics on Film, that's Derek, Derek WC from the Fanholes. Mr. Lomax, Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange, Scott Rifun, Radioactive Dinosaur, the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Batman Meets Godzilla, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, the Godzilla Novelization Project, Crystal Lady Jessica, Jimmy from NASA and Nathan Marchand. Together they are the Monster Island Film Vault, the Power Trip Podcast, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Xenozoic Xenophiles, the Mustachioed Podcastio, Darren Sutherland, the aforementioned John Vanover, Chuck Rodriguez, Gene Gene, the Podcasting Machine, Hendrix, Tim Elliott, John Kilgallen, Brian Severe, Tyler Zweistein, and last but certainly not least, my wife, TJ, thank you very much for liking the podcast, everybody. Really appreciate all the social media uh, uh, attention. As I said, helps get the word out here, and uh, it is very much appreciated. So, once again, we've come to the end of an episode of Earth Destruction Directive. And as always, as I like to say, we must forever look forward and not backward. Upwards and not forwards, and twirling, twirling, twirling. So what are we covering next time in Earth Destruction Directive? Well, we are going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to be taking a look at a video game, and not just any video game. We're going to be taking a look at King of the Monsters 2, The Next Thing from SNK. Now, we're going to be taking a look at two different versions of this game. You might recall when we did uh, King of the Monsters last year, 
I say it was last year, it was either 2020 or 2021. When we did King of the Monsters, I talked about how that game was ported to different systems. That's the same case here. So the difference is, is when King of the Monsters was ported to the home consoles, it was essentially the same game. It was stripped down a little bit from the arcade, but functionally the same. King of the Monsters 2, there are two distinct versions of this game. There is the arcade one, which we will be covering thanks to the ACA collection uh, version available on the Nintendo Switch eShop which is the arcade style. That was also the one that was ported to the Neo Geo home system, obviously, and to the Super Nintendo. But we will also be covering the Sega Genesis version, which is a completely different style of game. Uses the same basic uh, framework, all the same characters and environments, but goes from being a beat-em-up into a fighter. And that is a big difference. So we're going to be covering both of those. So I am very much excited for that. King of the King of the Monsters was always such a big deal, and King of the Monsters 2, it just amps up the crazy. It gets rid of some of the wrestling aspects, but I said it leans heavily on the Genesis one, which is the one, of course, I had and still have, thanks to my brother finding it at Funko Land, leans into the fighter aspect, which in the late 90s, you better believe that's where things were. So come on back that for next time. Again, want to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show. It is very much appreciated. I say it every time. Podcasts are a labor of love that we dedicate our time to, that we could be doing to our families or our work or other hobbies. And we do it because we enjoy doing it. And I'm glad other people find some enjoyment uh, from listening to the hard work that we, uh, that everybody puts in uh, on all the different shows here on two true freaks and across the podcast spectrum. I know. I mean, I've got shows I listen to on all sorts of different networks. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm working harder than anybody else. Cause I'm not, I am not, uh, might be working harder than some, but not working harder than everybody, and that's the truth. Uh, I also do want to take a moment to say that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you are a fan of giant monsters or giant monster culture, you are free to interact with this show in any way that you feel comfortable. Uh, all are welcome here. This is a, it's, it's for fans. It's by a fan for the fans. We're not looking to win the fandom. We're not looking to own the fandom. We're not looking to gatekeep, not looking to say you are worthy and you are not. If you're a giant monster fan, you can interact with this show however you'd like. And, uh, you're feel free to, to hit me up on social media, reach out to me via email, check the show out on YouTube to search for Earth Destruction Directive. You know, how, however you want to do it, you're welcome here. So, all right. All that said, as I said, thank you for downloading and listening. Hope you enjoyed our coverage of these two episodes of Ultraman, and I hope every one of you will come back for King of the Monsters 2. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at to truefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. 
just search for first name Luke, last name E-D-D. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter, just search for the handle at Ljacone, that's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin MacLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.